The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States' relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin. Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Pennsylvania issues a mask mandate. A mask mandate. And U.S. cases rise 1.8%. The latest in terms of what's going on. COVID-19 and the U.S. readying sanctions on China over rights abuses against the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. So we're going to get the latest on that front as well. And Tom Keen and company's exclusive interview with John Bolton. What did he have to say about Joe Biden? I'll tell you. Lots to get through. And Trump continuing to dismiss the Russian bounty intelligence reports as a quote-unquote hoax. Stock markets are doing all right. The stocks rise with NASDAQ at record on vaccine hope. Hope. I like optimism. U.S. cases rise 1.8% and PA is mandating the mask. This as, well, states are closing down again. But that's what we're going to dive into coming up on later into the program with our all-star political panel. But first, let's get a check of uh, the economy with our first guest, because some big news happened. It's USMCA Day. I know it's something we haven't talked about in a while, but Stephen Vaughn, who is the former USTR general counsel, is joining us uh, on the line. Uh, and Stephen, I appreciate your time. USMCA Day. This was the trade deal that was never going to happen, and then it happened. Well, uh, thank you for having me on. Um, I was general counsel of USTR when, when we were doing these negotiations. I always thought it would happen, and I'm very glad that it did. And so what does it mean in terms of the first steps for especially some of these battleground states, Iowa, the, uh, you know, Michigan, Wisconsin? What's USMCA going to do for them? So let's take Michigan, right? I mean, if you look at the numbers, uh, before President Trump was elected, 11 of the last 12 uh, auto assembly companies and uh, facilities in North America were built in Mexico. USMCA does a lot to address those uh, outsourcing of auto jobs and to encourage auto production at home. So a lot of people are going to benefit from that. With respect to farmers, USMCA gives us more access to the Canadian market than we had before. A lot of the things that you probably remember a couple of years ago, uh, controversies over unfiltered milk and, and some of those things, that's yep. all been resolved. And then third, just very quickly, we have a great uh, new surge of, uh, of rules to protect our intellectual property, our digital trade, our e-commerce. So all the high-tech sectors of the economy are going to really benefit from this new deal. You can take your time. We've got plenty of time. Uh, and you're, you're the guy who helped craft this. I mean, th literally, folks, we talk about trade policy every single day 
on this program, whether it's China, whether it's Mexico, Canada, now Europe increasingly. And Stephen Vaughn is really one of the people in the room who crafted the USMCA deal. I want to ask you in terms of implementation for American workers. Let's focus on the auto sector, for example. Because there was a lot of controversy, as you know, about what percentage of parts was going to be made where, what counts as an American part. But what does it mean for the average guy or gal working in the auto factories outside of Detroit? So what the USMCA does is, um, every time you have a trade deal, you have what's called a rule of origin. You have to satisfy that rule in order to get the benefits of the trade deal. So what the USMCA does is it raises the requirements for those rules of origin. In order to take advantage of the tariff-free uh, trade between Mexico and the United States, or between Canada and the United States, a higher percentage of those goods needs to be produced in high-wage parts of North America, which means the United States. Or, you know, and so you're going to see uh, more pressure put on companies to invest in this country, keep jobs here, keep production here. And that was one of the major things that the president really wanted out of the deal. All right. And, and folks, just so you know, I mean, this is someone who we're talking with who he's now at King and & Spalding, and he um, uh, has worked on a host of different uh, trade different types of um, uh, trade agreements as it relates. And, and I do want to ask you about USMCA, but I, I, you know, I cannot let you off the line without asking you about China in terms of the, the current uh, dynamic that we have with China as it is right now. How has Hong Kong and what's happened in the last 24 hours or 48 hours now um, impacted the U.S.-China trade relationship from your worldview? Well, I think, um, you know, foreign policy always ends up playing a role in trade policy. Yeah. Um, and as Americans have grown more concerned about the foreign policy aspects of the relationship, that, that's going to have an impact on the trade policy aspects of the relationship. So we have a phase one trade deal with China right now. I know USTR uh, believes that's a great deal, and, and I think it's a very good deal. And I think they're hoping that China is going to comply and they're going to do what they can to make sure that China does comply. Um, but anytime you have these type of uh, non-trade uh, factors, it can sometimes have an impact on, on trading relationships. And as we look at USMCA through the vacuum, we can't look at it through a vacuum. You know, you've got the Europeans now trying to pressure us. You've got China, obviously, what's been going on with them. So... If from, it, it, should people be breathing a sigh of relief that USMCA got done, that it's been being implemented? Uh, or is this just the beginning in terms of, of what the, the work has to be done in terms of sorting out these trade agreements? Well, I think what, you're, what you've seen over the last few years is there's been kind of a whole-of-government effort to reform a lot of our economic policy. We had new tax, co we had new tax uh, reductions. We've had a lot of regulatory changes, and we've got a lot of changes happening in trade. The relationship with Mexico and Canada is enormously important to the United States. They are two of our biggest trading partners. They're probably always going to be two of our biggest trading partners. So getting that deal right, taking an old agreement – that literally pre-existed the Internet and bringing it into the modern age and addressing a lot of these concerns about fairness for workers, that's a huge breakthrough. So now here in North America, 
We have a world-class agreement that's going to benefit all three countries, that's going to be good for workers, and that gives you a solid base for when you go out and negotiate with the rest of the world. All right, I think we're going to leave it there. Stephen Vaughn, he is the former U.S. Trade Representative's general counsel, and he served uh, and helped negotiate that United States-Mexico-Canada agreement. That's the USMCA. And, folks, you know, I, I can't under- So thank you, Stephen, for, for coming on. Now he's at King and Spalding, and he has worked on virtually every single major uh, trade agreement as it relates to China, as it relates to Europe. Uh, he's been in the background of that. The U.S. Court of International Trade, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, my, I mean, NAFTA, this guy knows everything about trade. And coming up, we're going to continue to talk about China, Hong Kong, and whatnot. And earlier today, uh, I spoke with the Undersecretary of, of Economic Affairs at the State Department, Keith Kroc. He's been on the show before. And, um, and I was asking him about Hong Kong. I was asking him about the economic policies. But increasingly, folks, it's not just trade that has the United States, not Democrats, not Republicans, but the United States as a whole, their deal. It's really increasingly also becoming about protecting the U.S. supply chain and protecting allies' supply chains uh, and agreements that when there are the funnels of trade and commerce that the supply chains, both cyber as well as brick-and-mortar supply chains, are going to be protected. And that, I think, you know, based upon talking to people like Keith as well as some other folks on the left, that is something that I think is now increasingly going to be the shadow or the background uh, and will color the the trade agreements. All right, coming up on the program, we're going to talk 2020 with Wendy Wallace, with Jennifer Nessauer, and others. But right now, just keep it here. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg DVN Radio, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. U.S. stocks rose as positive vaccine developments and better than expected manufacturing data tempered concern over a jump in coronavirus cases. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. I'm reading from Rita Nazareth and Sarah Ponchek's reporting on the Bloomberg terminal. The S&P 500 rose for a third day while the Nasdaq composite jumped to a record as an early trial of an experimental shot from Pfizer. And BioNTech SE showed that it's safe and prompted patients to produce antibodies. Have you had the antibody test, by the way? Has anyone else had the antibody test? You know, I've had it. Um, all right. Our next guest to talk about the economy is someone who knows a thing or two about the economy, Kip Eideberg. He is the Association of Equipment Manufacturers Senior Vice President. Kip, how are you? Doing well, Kevin. Thanks for having me on the show. So you have, anytime, you have a new survey on the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on the economy. Well, today the economy looks to be doing pretty well if you look at the market. What did your survey find? Well, I certainly hope that today's news is a a sign of good things to come. But as our survey indicates, Kevin, uh, equipment manufacturers continue to face decreased demand, stressed supply chains, and unfortunately, the industry has a long and uncertain road back to normal. And uh, let me give you a quick example, if I may, from our survey. Uh, For those equipment manufacturers who have furloughed employees, nearly a third said they would not bring them back to work. And 
for those laid off workers, eight out of 10, that's 80 percent, said they will not rehire them based on current market conditions. So while we have seen some improvements since our last survey, that picture is still pretty grim for the industry, Kevin. What are the sectors that are going to be hardest hit? Well, if you look at our industry uh, on the construction and mining side, uh, we, we tend to see a uh, a slightly more negative impact than on the agriculture side. Obviously, part of that has to do with the fact that, you know, farmers are out there planting. They need to plant so they can harvest, so we can put food on the table. So by and large, uh, those manufacturers who make agriculture equipment have done uh, slightly better than construction and and mining uh, so far this year. What about in terms of any bright spots, any bright spots or anything for optimism that the survey found? Well, I I think there's, there's, there's one spot of optimism, and I think there's one opportunity. So obviously on the optimism front, you know, our industry was designated as essential early on, which, which kept manufacturers open and on the top. Um, obviously, health and well-being of 2.8 million men and women of our industry has always been the number one priority and continues to be. But the fact that we have stayed open, I think, has put us in a position, uh, you know, ahead of certain other industries that have been harder hit in terms of having to shut down. And in terms of Obviously, the one thing that continues to be a drag for our industry is lack of demand for new equipment. I think that's where the federal government has an opportunity, both in terms of uh, a passing a federal infrastructure bill, and, and today there's a key vote in the House uh, of Representatives. But also, i got to tell you, Kevin, there is a, there's a revenue crisis at the state and local level as much as a $500 billion shortfall. More than 700 cities have stopped critical infrastructure projects. So if the federal government can step in and bridge that gap, I think we'll see uh, demand for new equipment start to uh, to rise, and we'll allow equipment manufacturers to bring some of those furloughed and laid-off workers back. Kip Eideberg's on the line. Uh, he's the Association of Equipment Manufacturers Senior Vice President. They've got this new survey out that really talks about manufacturers and equipment manufacturers and how they're handling this. You talk about the supply chain, and I want to keep this thread throughout the, the, the show today on the importance of protecting the supply chain. Because when I talk to Keith Crock at the State Department, the domestic supply chain and the international supply chain, obviously, but the domestic supply chain here in the United States also needs to be better protected. So when I was reviewing for the show and I was looking at the survey, one of the biggest issues facing equipment manufacturers as they reopen their facilities is continued supply chain issues. What are some of those issues? And does it include protecting it not just from the coronavirus, COVID-19, but also from national secu- from a national security perspective? Yeah, it, it does, and it's a great question, Kevin. So I think it's, it's you know, two things here, right? Number one, you know, you're absolutely right about how critical supply chains are. And in fact, you know, one of the concerns of our industry right now is obviously we worry about some of the equipment manufacturers, the OEM, you know, not being around come the fall as a result of the economic downturn. But even more troublesome is that a lot of the suppliers, many of them small, medium-sized domestic suppliers, are not going to be around. That's where we're seeing a lot of the pain right now. And if they are not around, when the, econo- like when the economy comes back, Kevin, and when demand comes back, well, those equipment manufacturers are not going to have the parts and components they need uh, to start churning out equipment. So shoring up the supply chain is critical for that, for that, from that point of view. But to your, uh, to your question about you know, shoring up the supply chain overall as a point of national security, look, you know, equipment manufacturers, it's a global industry, and, and we have supply chains, our members do, that stretch across the the, the world uh, and certainly today with the uh, with the USMCA coming into force, you know it's a good it's a good reminder of the uh, the interconnectedness of you know the United States, Canada, and Mexico. So that's good news. But 
obviously having local suppliers is also critical. Uh, and so I think we, what we need to do is we need to make sure that they can be competitive moving forward and that they can stay in business. And I think that's both immediate short-term support from the federal government in terms of the Paycheck Protection Program and the Main Street Lending Program, but also making sure that, you know, we got to protect them uh, against right. a increasingly global environment, right? Right. And Kip, can, can, yeah. Kip, I got I to gotta ask you this because you mentioned it. Kip Eidenberg, he's on the line. He's an SVP. He's an SVP at AEM, but not to get too much in the alphabet soup. Kip's the Association of Equipment Manufacturers Senior Vice President. So they wrap all the equipment manufacturers. You mentioned something that that you're hopeful for, that you want. And I got to be honest, I don't know if it's going to happen in the fall, but everybody's talking about it. The next round of economic stimulus. And now you've got Bojo, Boris Johnson over in the UK, passing some, uh, what was it? Infrastructure, the I word. Infrastructure. To, to provide some economic stimulus. And here's a conservative global world leader uh, who is quite controversial even in his own country, whether you, you, you love him or loathe him. But I'm curious, is that the potential roadmap, Kip, for President Trump ahead of November 3rd, forget the election for a second, to get infrastructure done come the fall? Absolutely, Kevin, 100%. You got and 30 seconds. Well, you know, the best way to get the economy roaring again is to help shore up manufacturing in the U.S. And the best way to do that is to invest in our infrastructure. Let's rebuild our roads and bridges. Let's put American back to work and let's strengthen our economy. That's the way to do it. All right. We're going to leave it there. Kip Eidenberg, Association of Equipment Manufacturers, Senior Vice President, talking all things on their new survey and, of course, on infrastructure. I don't know, folks. The jury's still out on the left and the right, whether or not there's consensus to get something so monumental passed before November 3rd. We'll find out, and we'll be talking about it. Coming up next, we talk 2020. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions. July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli. On Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. And some breaking news. The U.S. House of Representatives passed the unanimous, a unanimous consent. Uh, I apologize. The U.S. House of Representatives passed by unanimous consent a bill imposing sanctions on banks that do business with Chinese officials involved in cracking down on pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong. The bill, which is similar but not identical to a measure passed by the Senate last week, would have to be approved by the Senate before going to President Trump for a signature. And, of course, this comes, folks, as a response to the Chinese Communist Party enacting a strict new national security law for Hong Kong, a move many lawmakers said violated the government's promise to honor the autonomy of the former British colony. That's Daniel Flatley reporting on the Bloomberg Terminal. As the world turns. Wendy Wallace is a Democratic strategist and deputy executive director at the Democratic 
Governors Association. Wendy, how are you? I'm doing great, Kevin. How are you? I can't complain. Look, it looks like, you know, there appears to be a nonpartisan issue inside of Washington, D.C., and that's support for Hong Kong. Am I wrong? Um, I hope you're not wrong. Um, I, you know, it's rare that you see a nonpartisan issue inside of D.C. or really outside of D.C. these days. So that's that's a positive thing if we can find it. All right. So meanwhile, you've got so much going on with the Russia bounty situation. President Trump. For his part, has said nothing to see here. There's nothing going on. Uh, he's blamed the leaks uh, and saying that they were not brought to his attention. Do you think that this, Wendy, is going to shake up the race in any way? I mean, I think people are paying attention. And what we need are really straight answers coming out of the Trump administration on who knew what about intelligence and when they knew it and clear answers um, on how we will continue to protect the members of our military are at a minimum what the voters and the American people deserve. So I think particularly in the context of the 2020 race, people are paying attention and are looking for those answers. Okay. So earlier today, my colleagues on Bloomberg Surveillance, Tom Keene, Jonathan Farrow, Lisa Bramowitz, uh, they interviewed they interviewed uh, former National Security Advisor John Bolton, particularly about this issue, on the issue of uh, whether or not John Bolton himself had briefed the president on the Russia bounties. You know, he's got that book out, The Man Inside of the Room, Inside of the Oval. But did he brief the president on this issue of uh, the Russia bounties? Take a listen to what John Bolton had to say. Here it is. What it tells the Russians is we are in disarray. Uh, and uh, and ripe for this kind of provocation, not just in Afghanistan, but uh, in many, many other places around the world. So what he is, he declined to say whether or not uh, he had briefed the president on the Russia bounties. But he, he kept talking about this this notion of chaos coming from a foreign policy perspective from the United States. Is Joe Biden can he get away with just saying that he would restore order and not go into the details of what a Biden presidency would look like in terms of the actual intricacies of foreign policy? There's a headline literally within the last half hour that crossed the Bloomberg terminal, Wendy, that says that he would issue sanctions. He would be open to sanctioning Chinese officials. But Wendy, are we going to hear some policy details or is it kind of just, hey, you know what, let Trump trip over himself? Sorry. I mean, I think that, you know, there has been no shortage of lack of leadership coming out of the Trump administration in this moment. And I think it creates a great opportunity for the Biden campaign to really flex their muscles and talk about his history, um, particularly in the realm of foreign policy, and to show what they would do, you know, if given the reins so that the American people can make an informed decision. Well, what do you think he has to do, Wendy? Um, I think everyone likes to hear specifics. Um, However, it is hard to know what you'll do in the job until you're fully in there. Um, But, you know, in this instance, he can talk about how he would have liked to have been informed and what his actions would have been with a threat to our our military personnel. Wendy, what do you think? uh, Let's switch gears. What do you think? Who who should he pick for vice president? 
Oh, come on, Kevin. Don't put me on the spot. There are a lot of highly, highly qualified uh, women in the Democratic Party that any one of whom would make a great vice president. Like who? Come on, Wendy. Who? Who do you like? (laughs) I like them all. They all have really, like all of the people who are being discussed on um, the short list right now have great qualities. I am, of course, very partial to um, Democratic governors, as you said earlier, and so I would love to see him pick a governor. Who are some of the governors on the short list? Because we, we always hear about Kamala Harris and Val Demings. Who are some of the governors that, that are on the short list? Um, people I have heard discuss, um, Governor Gretchen Whitmer out of Michigan, um, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham out of New Mexico, both of whom would make amazing choices. All right. And meanwhile, when we talk about today's USMCA Day, and I want to get the Democratic response to this, folks, because we heard from the conservative um, ideological approach, especially in a state like Michigan, where trade policy is so incredibly crucial. Uh, Wendy Wallace, Democratic strategist and deputy uh, executive director at the Democratic Governors Association. Wendy, I mean... Michigan is, as you know, ground zero for for trade policy. And so how how is an issue like trade going to play, especially for some of these independent voters who go back and forth in a state like Michigan, in a state like Wisconsin, from uh, who voted for President Obama and then voted for President Trump? You know, these are going to these folks are going to decide the election. And so on on a thing like USMCA, which the president had campaigned on, that's a crucial economic message. So if if President Trump in 2016 campaigned and said, absolutely no more NAFTA, absolutely no more NAFTA, here's USMCA, Joe Biden had embraced NAFTA, what's the Democrats' message going to be in response to that argument in that battleground state of Michigan? I mean, look, what's important to voters in Michigan and across the country are that they are going to that their jobs are going to be secure and that they're going to have great jobs and can put food on the table for their families. Um, and what we have seen from Democrats across the board, but particularly in some of these states that got Democratic governors were able to win um, in 2017, 2018, and 2019, we know what the playbook is. Um, we have to keep our commitment to fundamental issues that uh, voters care about for their families, like health care, education, jobs. These are the things that are important. If you are talking about things that are being perceived as creating jobs, um, then you will win in these these really all-important states, and that's what we're going to see in 2020. What's going on in Pennsylvania with Governor Wolf? Because he's getting sued by the Republican state legislator, and they just— you know, I mean, that that's such a key battleground state. The, the polls have Biden leading there significantly. Obviously, he's headquartered uh, in Philadelphia. His campaign is. But for Governor Wolf, I mean, this this has been fascinating to watch the, the tug of war, the political tug of war between Democrats and Republicans there in that state. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it basically comes down to will people be able to have access to the ballot? And what Governor Wolf um, and Democrats in the state of Pennsylvania want to do is increase access to the ballot um, through voting by mail and through all these other measures. And their Republican opposition really wants to make it harder for people to vote. All right, we're going to leave it there. Uh, Wendy Wallace, who uh, has been so generous with her time, Democratic strategist and deputy executive director at the Democratic 
Governors Association. Come back anytime, Wendy. We appreciate that. Remember, folks, you can download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. It's been a very busy day here in Washington, D.C. President Trump has vowed to veto a defense bill to keep the Confederate base names. President Donald Trump has threatened to veto the entire defense bill if it contains a provision that would strip the names of Confederate generals from U.S. military bases. Hey, who was that amendment introduced by, folks? Senator Elizabeth Warren, the Democrat from Massachusetts. Coming up next, we check in with Republicans and Talk 2020. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. What's everybody going to do for the 4th of July? Are we allowed to watch fireworks this year? I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Make sure you do one thing tonight uh, and go subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. It's available on all of the different streaming platforms and whatnot. If you're not already subscribing to Bloomberg Sound On, and um, and listen to Lisa, John, and Tom's uh, interview with John Bolton because it really is interesting. It goes beyond the clickbait culture of the moment and dives into the policies, uh, and it's really, really well done. And Tom asks, as always, brilliant questions with a historical tint, uh, and and you really get a, a fascinating perspective on U.S. foreign policy not just conservative ideology, but also progressive ideology on foreign policy dating back all the way to Barry Goldwater days in a way that only Tom Keene can. So make sure to check that out if you can. Joining us on the line is someone who is a Republican strategist, uh, and we are thrilled to have her uh, back on. Her name is Jennifer Nasser. And Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on. She's a Republican strategist, former chairwoman of the Massachusetts Republican Party, and founder for Conservative Women for a Better Future. How are you, Jen? Jen? (laughs) Jen, are you there? She disconnected. Let's see if we can get her back. (laughs) Kevin, it's almost Friday. Here's a reminder. I have off Friday. (laughs) While we wait to get Jen back on the line, uh, let's go. <laughs> let's go through some of the other headlines of the day. The China sanctions bill on Hong Kong law was passed by the U.S. House, and there was some there was some disagreement about whether or not that was actually going to advance there uh, out of the House of Representatives, uh, and whether or not President Trump is going to sign it. It's going to have to go back to the Senate in order for it to be reconciled, and uh, it, it, the president's going to be facing an enormous amount. A pressure to sign this in the law, just given the ideological spectrum uh, that folks have uh, on it. And, you know, I would imagine that he's going to have to, to sign that into law. Barada, do we have Jen? She's there. Jen, are you there? I am here. Thank you, you, Jen. I thought you left me hanging. I thought, come on, Kev. You got two more shows till the weekend. Jen, what's going on with <laughs> I 2020? You guys decided you'd 
You know what? I thought you just didn't want the Republican from Massachusetts. Wow. Just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Hey, before we talk politics, I got to ask you, Cam Newton, huh? Shaking things up up there. I never liked Tom Brady. As a football player, I don't know him personally. But, you know, I thought he cheated, quite frankly. Anyway, what's going on with Cam? Uh, <laughs> it's exciting. I think it will shake up uh, the Patriots a little bit, and it's going to inject a, you know, a little excitement into Boston, into Massachusetts sports. It's super exciting. Well, you know, I'm an Eagles fan, and I hope you guys lose every game. But what can I say, Jen? <laughs> what can I say? All right, Republican uh, presidential politics. Let's go. We talked to a Democrat. She was saying that it's all shoo in for Biden. Why is not it a shoo in for Joe Biden? Um, well, okay, so here's the funny part about campaigns. Campaign 101. <laughs> you actually need to campaign. <laughs> like, they can't. Kind of, sort of no one can campaign, Jen. Jen, you got to be socially distant. You can't have the rallies. Come on. I mean, you got to be. Got to wear the mask. Go ahead. <laughs> you should probably come out. Number one, you should come out of your basement. <laughs> okay, Two, but really, what does the president have to do? see that you can have a conversation. <laughs> well, what? Okay, so that's the headline on the Drudge Report tonight, which is Trump and Biden fight over who's more senile, and it links to my friend Margaret Talib over at Axios's report. So, that, I mean, we, we say it with humor, but it's actually an issue in this in this race. But seriously, truthfully, what does the president have to do to to, to firm up some of the polling numbers in these battleground states? So, honestly. I, leadership is everything, right? And so the president has some awesome opportunities right now to go out and to show some leadership and to make people feel like there's someone in control. It's like having kids. You know, kids go wild if there are no parents around to put them in place and to tell them what the rules are. And so that's what the president needs to do. He needs to go. He needs to have conversations about things that might be uncomfortable, whether it's the all of the racial tensions that we're seeing, whether it's um, the reports on Russia right now, whether it's COVID. I mean, you know, see him talking about wearing a mask. That's great. We need a lot more of that. And I think if he can show that he can actually lead and not just incite, that will help him a lot. Well, I and, wanna... and also, you know, you have to go to the COVID areas, the places that are seeing resurgences like Florida, where people are elderly. And I think, you know, if he could make them feel like they're not going to all die, um, that would be helpful, too. Well, I mean, and, and it's it's a really delicate conversation to have, but... You know, you, you framed it, Jen, as saying, you know, look at all the opportunities. What do you say to folks who say, what, what this this chaotic summer? Because I think one of the things that independent voters, swing voters, when you look at the crosstabs of these polls, every poll has been, regardless of who, even if they're undecided, but regardless, they just want for the country to take a political deep breath. They just want some calm. They want some normalcy, yeah. not just on in the markets, but literally in their cities, you know, they, they want to be able to catch their breath. And I think you touched on that when you were talking about some of the senior citizens, especially down in Florida, uh, and especially given how the senior citizen vote has really been moving toward Biden. Now, I'm not one of those people who's going to say that it's over because I've covered enough races to know that it's incredibly early and these things change on a dime. Biden has not been out in front of the national microphones, but can I haven't really noticed. I mean, can President Trump inject that level of calmness into his administration or would that be a misstep? 
Well, I mean, he hasn't done a fabulous job of doing that so far. And so, you know, with all the shakeups, quite honestly, and, you know, so it, it is a little concerning. So can he do it? He's got to want to do it. He's he, If he wants to win another term, he does need to reach those voters. And I'll tell you, I live in a city. I live in Boston. And it's really quiet. And it's really eerie. And it would be nice to feel like the economy is really going to come back, that people aren't going to be on edge all the time. And if you look at the older voters and you look at these places where they did feel some comfort and now they're not feeling that anymore, um, I, I think that if he can get himself to a point where he really can show some compassion to uh, folks who are scared right now, it will, it will help him and go a long way. His base is always his base. They're always going to be fiery and excited when they see him, but he has to win those swing voters. He's got to win the Massachusetts Republican. I mean, seriously, because that Massachusetts, (laughs) but but I'm I'm serious. They're a bit more independent, probably on certain issues, more uh, what what Democrats would say are more progressive. Um, And and those are the suburbanite voters. Am I wrong? No, it's that's exactly it. I mean, you know, if you, I, it's maybe it's, it's, it's something that you, you just get programmed as when you're a New England Republican, but you kind of think, okay, if every independent around the country thinks how I do, um, which you know we're we're more fiscally responsible, more fiscally conservative, and more socially liberal, and so if you say, okay, I would say socially American, but go ahead, <laughs> right, exactly, more socially American, and so you know if you look at well, people are not so concerned about you know independent voters. They're not so concerned about the social issues, but what they are concerned about is where is the country going? What's the future for their children, for their grandchildren? Can I put food on the table? Can I put a roof over our head? Yeah. And, you know, and those are really the basic questions that people are going to be answering. I mean, look, are you going to, are independents going to like Donald Trump? Probably not, but they need to respect him. All right. Jennifer Nasser, Republican strategist, former chairwoman of the Massachusetts Republican Party, and I guess a Patriots fan. Thanks for coming on. That does it for me. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. Jen, I'm glad you picked up the phone. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.